some significant population changes going on in the United States today. These trends will change the voting landscape of the country significantly. What changes are taking place? How will that affect our upcoming and future elections? Can we have a hope for our future? Or are we facing a moral crisis right here in our nation? What can we expect in the upcoming election of 2012? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author, scholar, and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we're going to listen to Pat's guest, Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, who recently presented a message at the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference entitled, Election 2012. This insightful presentation, along with the entire series of messages from Pat and his guests, can be purchased at evidenceandanswers.org. Let's join Kirby Anderson now as he presents his message entitled, Election 2012. When we talk about this upcoming election, I think some of you might say I'm already looking at the presidential candidates, looking at our U.S. Senate candidates here in Hawaii and going, can we just have a mulligan? Can we try over again? Can we do something else? And, or maybe you've seen some trends that are of concern to you, but I want to share with you some that I think are very positive and might really help us understand that this is not only a very important election coming up, but also that uh, even if we don't see some of this here in Hawaii, it will be, I think, helpful to know that around the nation, especially in the mainland, there are some very positive elements taking place. And so once we look at that, that will be kind of helpful to you as well. Then I want to move from that to talk about what are some biblical principles about government and even what has been kind of the historical perspective in some of that, and then end just with kind of an outline. So generally, we can say that a lot of people are moving from the north to the south, from the snow belt to the sun belt. But it's a little more significant than even that. For example, some of the fastest growth rates, as you can see on the screen there, are in Texas, the Rocky Mountain states, of the South Atlantic states. When I talk about this presidential election, when I talk about the Electoral College, when I talk about what's going to happen in Congress next year, this is going to have an impact, and I'll explain more about that in just a minute. Uh, we see, for example, in some of the states that uh, oftentimes have been identified as red states, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, those growth rates are much higher than oftentimes the West Coast states, California, Oregon, and Washington. Something else is a remarkable realignment, even in terms of what is happening in many of the cities. For example, Dallas is now larger, has a larger population than San Francisco. Houston, a larger population than Boston. Charlotte, a larger population than Milwaukee. And at the same time, we see what has been a collapse of the population in Detroit and Pittsburgh, uh, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Buffalo, Rochester. When we talk about the second trend, which I'll spend a little more time on, and that is we just went through a census. Now the census is kind of interesting because we are required to do that every 10 years. And as a result, we have had some states that now have additional representation, other states which will lose representation. That hasn't really affected the state of Hawaii, but here are some that have been affected in very dramatic ways that you can see in the chart that I have up there. Uh, Texas, for example, has gained four additional congressional seats. That also means they've gained four additional electoral votes this time. Florida, too. Six other states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, South Carolina, Utah, and Washington, have all gained representation. 
Right here in the state of Hawaii right now, you're having a little bit of a debate about redistricting and uh, uh, the whole question about how to apportion the two congressional districts. But if you want to see a battle, state of Texas, we are still trying to resolve that simply because they've not only added four states, but as a result, we were supposed to have a primary March 6th. Then it was supposed to be April 3rd. Now they're talking about May. At the rate we're going, we're going to have a primary the same time you do in August 11th, which is when your primary is, interestingly enough. Not your presidential one, but your other one. And so, again, you've got some very significant battles being waged over various congressional representation, state, Senate representation. By contrast, you have a number of states that have lost representation. New York has lost two and eight other states, Illinois, Iowa, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania have also lost. And what that means is, first of all, you're going to have more individuals in Congress next time that are coming from states that are more likely to be values voter oriented and fewer that we're going to be maybe less likely to be values oriented. It also means that if the election were held today and, for example, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, were to win the same states he won last time, he would have fewer electoral votes because of the reapportionment. It's going to be a bit of more of a challenge for his re-election campaign simply because of the census that has taken place. And again, illustrating some remarkable changes that have taken place in the electorate over just the last couple of months. Let's look at this as well. You've seen many of these various House cases, especially some of the state legislators have changed. In the last election, for example, the 2020 election, you had a number of houses, 20 different legislative houses that were be controlled by the Democrats, now controlled by the Republicans. Republicans, for example, needed five seats for a majority in Pennsylvania. They actually gained 15. They needed four in Ohio, got 13. Needed four in Wisconsin, gained 14 seats. By the way, when you look at Wisconsin, we're going to come back to that in just a minute because if you are not familiar, one of the big battles in Madison, Wisconsin has been with Governor Walker and this, uh, both the House and the Senate there having to do with union issues. But again, you see some very significant changes that have taken place just in the last couple of months. Let me look at a third trend, and I'm going to go through these fairly quickly so we'll have time for other discussions. But a third trend, I was hearing just the other day that, for example, U-Haul will actually charge you much less to move from Texas to California than if you want to move from California to Texas. And there are some reasons for that, because there are a lot of people moving from places like California to Texas and not so many the other direction. Well, anyway, 20,000 people relocate over state lines every single day. And so what they found is an interesting pattern. And that is, the pattern is, is that in general, people are moving from high income tax states, state income tax states, to those with little or no income tax. For example, they found that families are leaving in droves from these six states, Michigan, New York, New Jersey, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Illinois. As a matter of fact, more people are leaving the state of Michigan than any other state to move to other states. Number two is South Dakota, but I'll come back to that in just a minute. By contrast, what you're seeing is if you look at the eight states that have no state income tax, that would be Florida, Nevada, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming, every single one of those has gained in net domestic migrants, that is people moving from other states to those states, and all but one, except Florida, are ranked in the top 12. Florida, by the way, has a fairly high number of property taxes. But again, we're seeing people move from high tax states to low tax states. 
A good example of that I put up there is North Dakota and South Dakota. I don't know how many of you have ever been to North Dakota. I almost always go to North Dakota in winter. You know, I am so glad that this February I'm in Hawaii, but lots of times I find myself speaking at the University of North Dakota, North Dakota State in February. Why? Because not much is happening up there, so they're glad to have a speaker come and kind of warm the audience up. But, you know, I've been in North Dakota and I've been in South Dakota. I don't know if you've been to those two states, but I'd have to say that there really isn't much difference between North Dakota and South Dakota. But there is a very significant difference in terms of moving. North Dakota, people are moving out of North Dakota more than any other state except Michigan, and South Dakota is in the top 10 states that people are moving to. They're moving from North Dakota to South Dakota in droves. Why? North Dakota has a state income tax, South Dakota does not. You can take another one, California, Nevada, a little closer to us here, and again, we see lots of people are moving out of California, and yet the massive number of people that have been moving into the state of Nevada. California has a very high state income tax, Nevada does not have one. And so again, we're seeing that even when you look at the movement, the patterns are a little more intricate, but as we look at those, again, some interesting kind of trends that I think are gonna play out in this next election. When we look at growth rates, it's kind of interesting as well because you can see that certain states are growing much faster than others. And they found that those eight states I just mentioned a minute ago that have no income tax actually grew at 18% in this last decade. The other states grew at only 8%. Look at it another way. This is a chart here on those states which have right-to-work laws which grew at 15% compared to states that did not and those grew at 6%. Another way to look at this is a big debate right now that is taking place and actually has led to the potential recall of the governor in Wisconsin, Governor Walker, had to do about collective bargaining with public employees. The 16 states where that is not required grew 15%, those which either are neutral or do indeed require that 7%. So you can see that there are all sorts of things that are starting to unfold in the political realm, but let me move away from the political realm to something else. Because the fifth trend, which I think is very intriguing, is a political trend that has to do with fertility. Arthur Brooks, when he first wrote about this fertility gap, was actually at the American Enterprise Institute, now, uh, well actually at that time it was at Syracuse University, now is American Enterprise Institute. Philip Longman, who actually would identify himself as a progressive or a liberal, wrote this book called The Empty Cradle. And so whether I quote from Arthur Brooks, who would consider himself a conservative, or Philip Longman, who would call himself a progressive or a liberal, both of them identify the very same issue. And here it is. He went out in America, and you picked 100 unrelated, politically liberal adults at random. Those 100 adults would have among them about 147 children. They then went out and interviewed or picked 100 unrelated, politically conservative individuals. You would find that they would have 208 children. That's a fertility gap of 41%. Now they have focused primarily just on the difference between liberal and conservative. They've done it for Republican and Democrat. I've done some on the difference between a secular and a Christian. You know, if you look around, I have some people that say we actually have kind of zero population growth, which you wouldn't know it if you looked at our church and nurseries right now, would you? Because Christians tend to have many more children than non-Christians. Conservatives tend to have more children than liberals. Uh, so you can kind of play out that. 
But the point is, is that as these two individuals, one liberal, one conservative, looking at this, have played this out, they say that this may be one of the most significant changes in the future in American politics. Because overall, the tendency is, is that if you grow up in a home where you're a Republican, 80% of the time you'll probably be a Republican. If you grow up in a home where you're a Demo your family is a Democrat, you'll 80% of the time will be a Democrat. If you grow up in a home where, by and large, your parents are generally conservative, 80% of the time you'll be conservative. If you grow up in a home where your parents are liberal, 80% of the time the other uh, particular situation will take place. Now there is some change. I've said before that you can grow up in a conservative home and then you go set off to those liberal manufacturing universities and sometimes they convert them for a time but sometimes they come back again. But it is interesting that this fertility gap does not budge at all when you look at age, income, education, sex, race, or religion. So it means there are going to be a lot more little Republicans than there are little Democrats. A lot more little conservatives than little liberals, or one that I found, because this is not in their study, but you can document that, a lot more little Christians than there are little secularists. And if you play that out over time, both Philip Longman, a liberal, and Arthur Brooks, a conservative, have begun to look at. Because right now, you can look in this presidential election at the state of Ohio. There are 12 states right now that are really going to determine who the next president is. And frankly, if you tell me who wins Ohio and Florida, I'll tell you who the next president is. It's almost that close. But certainly Ohio is not nearly red, not nearly blue. A lot of people call it a purple state. It's kind of 50-50. Ohio has been that way for some time. And that certainly seems to fit in terms of Republican-Democrat registration, liberal-conservative orientation. But what Philip Longman and especially Arthur Books point out is if this trend continues by the year 2020, it will no longer be a 50-50 state. It will be 59-41 conservative. In other words, the trend is playing out in that way. How about California? I was born in Berkeley, California. Berkeley, California, okay? I'm from California originally, although I live in Texas now. It's pretty much 55-45 pretty much liberal Democrat versus conservative Republican. But again, by 2020, some people think it could almost reverse. And the point I'm making is, is that some things are changing in the environment that a lot of people did not anticipate. Let's take a pro-life issue. If you look at the latest Gallup polls, you look at various other studies that have been done, even the Rasmussen poll, I had uh, certainly Mr. Rasmussen on my radio program the other day, there is an interesting statistic that I think illustrates this only so well. The younger you are, the more likely you are to be pro-life. Probably the most pro-life generation is the younger generation. Now think about that for a minute. That's not exactly what um, people that were promoting so-called abortion rights were expecting. Planned Parenthood, National Abortion Rights League would say, well, by the time abortion essentially was legalized by Roe versus Wade in 1973, we would expect by a generation later, the young people growing up seeing abortion legal would probably always think that it was legal and probably always want it to be legal. Yet the younger you are, the more likely you are to be pro-life. Why? A couple of reasons. First of all, the youngest generation has seen a lot more about what happens inside the womb. We have sonograms and ultrasounds and things of that nature. That certainly has been the case. But more importantly, even though we've had more than 50 million abortions here in America, that abortion rate was not uniform across the population. 
you are more likely to be aborted in a pro-choice home than you were in a pro-life home. And pro-lifers tend to have more children than those who tend to be pro-choice. And so this whole generational uh, tsunami is beginning to unfold. And each year we see a higher percentage of Americans identify themselves as pro-life. But the change in large part is due to the younger generation. And again, just another illustration of some of the things that Philip Longman and also Arthur Brooks have identified in terms of remarkable changes that I think are going to affect future elections. Let's look at a different one. Economic trend. In my book, Making the Most of Your Money in Tough Times, I have a story in there, and it's from Warren Buffett. Don't quote from Warren Buffett very often, but Warren Buffett uses this great illustration of imagine you have two different islands. One we'll call Thriftville, and the other we'll call Squanderville. And both of them are at pretty much subsistence wages and living pretty much a normal lifestyle, but not necessarily living the greatest lifestyle. But those in Thriftville begin to produce additional gifts and services. And so the people in Squanderville begin to buy those additional gifts and services um, and all the various kinds of products and things like that. And so in order to do that, they give them squander dollars and squander bucks to buy some of that. And over time, the people in Thriftville begin to develop more and more for the people in Squanderville. And the Squanderville people are grateful because they're having all sorts of various kinds of products and services that they can just buy for. But then over time, the people in Thriftville begin to be a little concerned because up until that time, they were getting sort of these squander bonds and things like that. So they denominate those squander bonds into squander bucks and they actually begin to buy up parts of Squanderville and eventually get to a point where the people in Thriftville own all of Squanderville. Now that's the story of Warren Buffett. Now the few times I've ever spoken on that, I say, can anybody think of who Thriftville might be? Mm, China, Saudi Arabia, Japan, UK, mostly China is the best uh, estimate there. Does anybody have to guess who Squanderville is? You can see on the chart here, this is, I think, going to be a major campaign issue if it hasn't already unfolded. We have $15 trillion in debt, and that's just what's on the books. In 1980, the United States was the largest creditor nation in the history of the world. And during 1980, most Americans at that time tended to save about 10% of their discretionary income. Now we're the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, and most Americans save just a pittance of their discretionary income. Something has obviously changed. And of course, we have all sorts of votes here on raising the debt ceiling. Every time we turn around, we talk about raising the debt ceiling. And even before that, we had individuals saying, well, we need to spend money on the stimulus. And uh, while he was still the head of the Blue Dog Democrats, uh, Gene Taylor pointed out something that I thought helped us put some of these numbers in perspective. I mean, $15 trillion, that's kind of like monopoly money. It's kind of hard to get your head around, right? But he said, you know, when we passed the first stimulus bill, it was $789 billion. What's $789 billion equal to? He said that was equal to the accumulated debt from George Washington to Jimmy Carter. Think about that. The accumulated debt from George Washington to Jimmy Carter. 
in some respects, that may be a, have been a worthwhile investment. If you think about that, we fought a, a revolutionary war, a war of 1812. Uh, we had a civil war. We had the Spanish-American War. We had World War I. We had World War II. We had the Korean War. We had the Vietnam War. During that same time, we had major railroad system, the interstate highway system, and much more. But here, from George Washington to Jimmy Carter, $789 billion. And that was passed just in one bill. I believe that that's going to be something that a lot of people are going to say, wait a minute, no mas, no more. We'll see how that plays itself out. But if we don't, as you will hear tonight from Dr. Mark Hitchcock, that might explain why we're talking about tonight the late, great United States of America. I still think it's possible to turn it around, but you know, you can only kick the can down the road for long, and then you run out of road, and people still want to kick the can. But the seventh and final trend that I think is a positive one is technological trend because now we have all sorts of other things. We have talk radio, the internet, cable television. We're no longer dependent just on the big three for information. And so as a result, people are much more educated. If you've gone to a town hall meeting for a member of Congress, I am amazed that sometimes people in the audience know as much, sometimes sadly even more, than their elected representative. And that's due to just so much more information that is out there. And a lot of that's due to this book uh, and others that have talked about the fact that we now have all the digitized information in the world. Some of you right now have smartphones that you have open because you're getting bored by what I'm saying, or maybe you have your iPad out, and you can have access as you open those up to all the digitized information in the world. And you know what? Knowledge and information is power, and that's a good thing as well. So those are just uh, seven trends that sort of occurred to me that are somewhat positive because as we begin to think about this, there are going to be a lot of negatives we'll hear tonight, even as we talk about uh, the end of the world. But let's for just a few minutes, if we can, spend a little bit of time kind of thinking through how we as Christians should actually engage the political process. And the first thing I would suggest is, is that we really have a dual citizenship. Now, the scripture is very clear that ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. But at the same time, Jesus talks about the fact that we are to, in a sense, be in the world, not of the world. We're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We've been sent into this world, and so I think we have a citizenship in both heaven and earth. Now, certainly our citizenship is in heaven, and we need to have an eternal perspective. And I think the, one of the things that the uh, Conference on Prophecy has done is help us recognize that, you know, Christ is coming again. And prophecy helps us recognize that. But at the same time, we also have a responsibility here on earth. And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn with me to Romans 13, because we'll uh, look at that passage on two separate occasions. But first of all, I want to just give us a brief overview of a couple of things that are obviously part of Romans 13. And the first is, is that it tells us that every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now that's kind of helpful to understand, because when I was at Georgetown University and I was taking classes on modern political theory, I began to realize that if I took seriously a biblical view of human nature and a biblical view of government, I could reject all sorts of political theories because a lot of political theories are based upon the idea that, well, we had to institute government to keep us from killing each other because the world is nasty and brutish. 
But really, the scriptures tell us, no, the reason we have government is because God has ordained government. It is a God-ordained institution. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But it also says that we are to render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And so the very first thing we can say is, is that as Christians, we have a responsibility to obey those in government. It's not optional. We are to obey government because after all, it is divinely ordained. Now, is there ever a time when we would disobey government? Yes, I'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but I think when there's a direct and specific command that is given to you, which if obeyed would cause you to disobey God, then we have to exercise civil disobedience. But in most cases, we have an opportunity to bring about a change, and so thus, I think the primary emphasis in Scripture is that we obey those in government. Another thing we can learn is as Paul is writing to Timothy, some of his last instructions to Timothy, he gives him some initial statements in the first chapter, but then as he begins what we call today our second chapter, he says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so I think another implication is not only should we obey those in authority, but we should also pray for those in authority. If you're going to be an obedient Christian, we should not only obey those in authority, but pray for our, what I say, our key 16. you enjoyed this fun and insightful study from Pat on the value and compelling evidence of Bible prophecy. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this message in its entirety and enjoy other great resources right here on this site. Also, the entire series from the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference featuring Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Kirby Anderson, and other fine teachers also are available at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry with Probe International relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat and his friends continue to provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.